When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Sorry for talking so much. I'm late, but God bless you, Wilbert, because another board operator might have interrupted me giving some advice to Nancy, and that's good for you. You got a good heart. You got a big heart for not letting me get interrupted and continue. Who cares that I'm starting at 8.04 now instead of 8 o'clock? God bless you. That's the way to be. Young doctors come to see me to train with me. You know what they ask me? When, when are we done with seeing patients? I have no idea. We're done when, when I finish talking to the last person. This is not a nine-to-five job. Really? How much do you have to work? How about 24 hours a day, seven days a week? I'm like a farmer. The cows don't know what a vacation is. Cows don't know what a weekend is. That's how I treat the radio. That's how I treat everything. I don't even wear a watch. We're done when we're done. So God bless you, Wilbur. Appreciate that. At 8.15, I'm so excited. My guest is Dylan Hernandez from the L.A. Times. He's my favorite journalist in L.A. because he looks at articles and topics and goes deep and shows us a side to the story that we would not necessarily see. Last Sunday was my birthday, July 24th. And guess what else happened last Sunday other than my birthday? Joni Mitchell at 78 years old went to the Newport Folk Festival, and she sang a song about today's topic. And this is the song. It's about clouds, right? No, it's not. It's about... She's looking up. don't know the Dodgers until Dylan Hernandez tells us what's up with the Dodgers. 
But think about Joni Mitchell, 78 years old, singing still. She wrote this song. She sings this song. She plays the guitar. This is like Tom Brady. You can't be that good and that good looking. It's not fair. How can you have it all? God blessed Joni Mitchell with all this talent, just like he blessed Tom Brady. But we need people to look at things from different sides, just like Joni Mitchell in the world of music. And in the world of sports, we need Howard Cosell, 1968. Muhammad Ali has been banned from boxing for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Many sports writers still want to call him Cassius Marcellus Clay, and he says, no, that's a slave name. You're going to call me Muhammad Ali. No one wanted to call him Muhammad Ali except Howard Cosell. He had the cojones, the toughness to go against the system. Here he is sitting down with Muhammad Ali during his banishment from boxing for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War, keeping his name in the limelight, letting Muhammad Ali know, I got your back, Muhammad. A year ago this month, at 4800 San Jacinto in Houston, Texas, this man refused to take a step. For the past year, he's been virtually incarcerated in this country. He's undergone all of this for the obvious reason that he didn't have the courage to fight such as Joe Fraser, Jerry Quarry, and Jimmy you, Ellis. Why would you say that? I didn't have the courage <laughs> to fight uh, Joe Frazier and, and Jimmy Ellis and Jerry Quarry. I mean, why would you say that? I mean, you know I've never showed no fear of nobody. And why would you, uh, as many times as you have came to my fights, knowing you had money bet on other people, I beat them. <laughs> I mean, why would you, seriously, I mean, why would you sit here on television and, and talk about uh, me being afraid of Jerry Carr or Joe Frazier. I mean, that's wrong. I mean, we just don't get along no kind of way. We don't get along, and yet the love and the respect that the two of them had for each other was enormous. They had the banter. That was entertainment. But Howard Cosell recognized that's how he could get the word out, by entertaining you. But he really was going after a deeper social issue. I want to quieten you at once and for all. Ah, you son of a gun, you've had enough fun with me. You know that the one guy who has persistently maintained that there is one heavyweight champion in this world is Howard Cosell. And I have said repeatedly that you could beat all of these guys. But you make a lot of cracks. I mean, you just said I had a lot of trouble with these boys. And you're talking about me getting out of boxing in time to duck Frazier and this and that. And I don't know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You don't look as broke as you're supposed to be. <laughs> no, what you mean, broke? Oh. Everybody says you're broke. You got no money. You gave it all to uh, Elijah Muhammad. No, how could I give it to Elijah Muhammad? I mean, the government, the American government, took 90% of, of all of my money before I got it. You know that Lobo Sponsoring Group had that deal called the Joe Lewis <laughs> Tax Law. Uh, they would go at each other, and it was the greatest because it was more than the boxing that they were talking about. The fact of the matter is, the thing you've missed most over the past year were the steady vocal sparring sessions that we enjoyed on Wide World of Sports. Well, we had a lot of fun, but uh, let's let the other boys have a chance and build some more contenders. After beating Zoe Foley, you know, no one was left for me to fight. So I think even if I was still fighting, it would have been good for me to step aside for two years and let them fight it out to see who deserves the honor to fight me. It's been fun. We've missed it. Well, we... Things make it better soon. 
one, one more shuffle. Well, if I do the shuffle, you might have to scuffle. <laughs> We've done that, too. Good luck to you. Thank you. His love, Howard Cosell, broke all the rules to tell us the other side of the story. What about in the world of art? This man, he wanted to talk about racism. He wanted to talk about fascism. He wanted to talk about topics that black and white television would not let him in the 50s and 60s talk about. So he became a science fiction writer and used Martians as the minority because you couldn't make the story about a black man in the South. No, you couldn't do that, but you could talk about a Martian. The bigotry against the Martian, then they didn't mind. His name was Rod Serling. Only lived to be 50 years old, but in his time, he made a difference. Listen to the intro to the show, The Twilight Zone, and then you can hear what he's trying to do. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Rod Serling, this is an interview with Mike Wallace, black and white TV on YouTube. You can watch it. How do you go against the man, the industry, the sponsors? How do you stay away from that censorship? Rod Serling will tell you how he did it. Becoming a science fiction writer instead of a man writing about the real issues, but they wouldn't get on the air. This is how he got around it. That even today stand up pretty well. And uh, I was doing Lux Video, Craft Theater. The early so-called pioneer days of television, which of course are hardly pioneer, but anything over eight years old is pioneer style in television. You've come a long way since those early days. And perhaps more than any other writer, your name is figured in the classic battle of the, that is television writer, uh, the battle of the writer to be his own man. What happens? when a writer like yourself writes something that he really believes in for television. Really believes in. I'm not sure I understand the question, Mike. What happens, you mean, in terms of... Well, we hear a lot about censorship of the writer on TV. We hear a good deal about it in your own case especially. Well, depending, of course, on the thematic treatment you're using, if you have the temerity to try to dramatize a theme that involves any particular social controversy currently extant, then you're in deep trouble. For instance? Uh, a racial theme, for example. My the case in point, I think, uh, a show I did for the Steel Hour some years ago, three years ago, called Noon on Doomsday, yeah. which was uh, a story which purported to tell what was the aftermath of the alleged kidnapping in Mississippi of the Tillboy. Yeah. Who happened to be black. And I wrote the script using black and white uh, initially. Then it was changed uh, to suggest an unnamed foreigner. Then the locale was moved from the south to, the, to New England, and I'm convinced they'd have gone up to Alaska or the North Pole if, and using Eskimos as a possible minority, except I suppose the costume problem was of sufficient severity not to attempt it. But it became a lukewarm, vitiated, emasculated kind of show. You went along with it? All the way. I protested. I went down fighting, as most television writers do. Yeah. 
thinking in a strange, oblique, philosophical way that better say something than nothing. Yep. But listen to what Coca-Cola tried to do because they're from Atlanta. They're from the South. You're not going to do a show about black versus white. In this particular show, though, by the time they had finished taking Coca-Cola bottles off the set because these monster claimed that this had southern connotations, suggesting to what depth they went to make this a clean, antiseptically, rigidly uh, acceptable show. Uh, why it bore no relationship at all to what we had purported to say in initially. Patty Chayefsky has talked about the insidious influence of what he calls pre-censorship. How does that work? Uh, pre-censorship is a practice, I think, of most television writers. I can't speak for all of them. This is the prior knowledge of the writer of those areas which are difficult to try to get through. And so a writer will shy away from writing those things which he knows he's going to have trouble with on a sponsorial or an agency level. We practice it all the time. We just do not write those themes which, you know are going, which we know are going to get into trouble. So the bad guy's not the network. The bad guy's really not the advertiser. Guess who the bad guy can be? Us, the audience. We're the ones censoring the writer. Who's the culprit? Is it the network, the sponsor? It sure is not the FCC. No, it's certainly not the FCC, ideally speaking, of course. It's a combination of culprits in this case, Mike. It's partly network, it's principally agency and sponsor. In many ways, I think it's the audience themselves. This is what I want to ask Dylan Hernandez about. I cannot wait to talk to him. Coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Keyshawn in the morning. My man, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show starts your Saturday morning. Join the doc from 7 to 9 a.m. But don't miss my show Monday morning on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. At 42 years old, you know what your new nickname is for me? <laughs> Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. You're not Matthew from Santa Monica anymore. You're Mr. Preop. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to my next guest. The great Dylan Hernandez from the L.A. Times. Dylan, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me on. You know, I got a couple small kids, so I'm usually up at this hour. Oh, It just doesn't feel too early for me. Oh, I love it. Listen, I want to thank Eric Sondheim for hooking us up and making it happen. He has such a beautiful niche in this town talking about high school sports. But I'm going to tell you, I'm president of the Dylan Hernandez Fan Club and uh, it's not just because you're on the air right now. I still read the L.A. Times, get the L.A. Times, and the first thing I look for is if that day you wrote an article. So I just i am so excited to be able to talk to you about your technique and your craft and your passion. But before we get started, Dylan, who are you? Where are you from? What your father do for a living? And are you named after Bob Dylan? 
Uh, close. I was actually named after Dylan Thomas. Ah! Uh, right, Bob Dylan named himself after. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, my uh, my father uh, was a uh, middle school teacher. Wow. Uh, he's retired now, uh, but he was born in El Salvador. Uh, wow. Moved here when he was about ten years old. Uh, my mother is from Japan. Uh, wow. She's from Niigata. Uh, she didn't come here until like her twenties. Uh, weird story. They supposedly met on a tour bus in Mexico City. <laughs> I, I, I haven't really asked like too many questions, you know, because I'm not sure like how this story is going to stand up to close examination. <laughs> but uh, that's what they say. And, uh, you know, I think they're both living it. So they're both living in L.A. at the time. My dad pretty much grew up in Los Angeles. He you know, went to Belmont High School. Wow. Um, you know, and that's that was kind of the area where where. I was born uh-huh. and uh you know my mom was a nurse in japan in tokyo oh wow and basically kind of took like a year off uh, came to the united states to kind of do one of those study abroad type things and while she was here she and a friend went down to mexico and uh that's in theory where she met my dad so Holy uh, yeah so i kind of grew up in this multilingual multicultural household wow. um you know which at the time was i think pretty different um my mom uh, for some reason, decided to like enroll me in this like uh, Japanese. So this was I'm a 1980 birthday, right? So <laughs> during the 80s, you had a lot of uh, you know uh, Japanese businessmen who would come here on two or three year work assignments. You know when they brought their children over here, uh, you know they had to uh, find like a Japanese school for their their kids so that when they went back to Japan, they could slide right in. I mean this mm. wasn't uh, we're going to teach you Japanese type thing. This was like <laughs> we're keeping up with the curriculum over there. So. Uh, I went to my normal school Monday through Friday, and then on the Saturdays I would have to go to this Japanese school, which is just like torture. Uh, but uh, the good thing was, that listen, I went to yeshiva. I, I got tortured also, Dylan. I, I had to go to yeshiva. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you know that's kind of the educational background there. Did, uh, where'd you go to high to, school? Uh, where'd you go to college? Uh, South Pasadena High School. Uh, so Steve Urkel uh, was. Uh, the he graduated the year before <laughs> I got into high school. Um, you know, we have like they're like a lot of actor kids type here, right? I mean, a lot of uh, South Pasadena. Uh-huh. You guys don't know. It's kind of this. Uh, you know, a lot of right those shots that they have in sitcoms of the random suburban street. I mean, that's kind of South Pass. So wow. uh, it was kind of a nice upbringing. And I went to UCLA. All and right, then, uh, a Bruin. Yeah, Love after it. that, I yeah. After that, I did five years at the San Jose Mercury News, and then uh, I've been down here since. Wow, what a great journey. All right, Jim Murray, when he was talking about Koufax, he said Sandy's fastball was so fast, some batter started to swing while he was on his way to the pitcher's mound. Oh, my God, Jim Murray. The Indy 500, gentlemen, start your coffins. So I got to ask you, you're at the L.A. Times. Who was it that inspired you, of all things to go into, to be a sports journalist? Uh, I, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I think it was just that I was, I was just always into sports. Um, you know, growing up, I mostly played soccer. Uh, now my younger brother was kind of like on the state level, like Olympic development team. Right. Mm. So I'm not even the best player in my house at this point. (laughs) So I think at a pretty young age, I understand, okay, well, if I want to be right in sports, I'm going to have to, it's not going to be as an athlete. You know, Mm. I figured that out pretty quickly. And I just think, like, I always like to read, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated, obviously. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, you know, guys like Mike Penner at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Frank DeFord. Yeah, Frank DeFord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously at SI. 
Um, and so it was, it was a lot of stuff, you know, and I think, uh, you know, honestly, my ambition initially was to, you know, either cover soccer or boxing. Those are like my two favorite sports. Um, you know, Richard Hoffer at Sports Illustrated, Steve Springer at the LA Times. I mean, those are two great boxing writers. Uh, those are two, you know, so those are the sports that I kind of liked. And it was just that as I kind of went along because of the, the language advantages that I had, you know, obviously I speak Spanish because uh, my grandmother and my great grandmother uh, from El Salvador were the ones kind of initially taking care of me when I was first born. So mm. in theory, I learned Spanish first. And so, you know, between Spanish, Japanese and English, I mean, I can talk to right most of the people that play the game. So wow. it just kind of my career just kind of right steered me in that direction. And, you know, obviously, as the newspaper industry, you know, jobs became rarer and rarer. You know, you have to obviously kind of go to, uh, right, the more popular sport because there's safety in that job. So I kind of became a baseball writer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, you know, I covered the Dodgers, I think, for the Times for eight years. I think even now, you know, I write a lot of columns, but a good amount of them are baseball. It's probably the area now where I'm most comfortable reporting. I know the most people for sure. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's just kind of how things ended up. Where do the ideas come from for the article? Can you just take us through – I'm just looking at the article from uh, Thursday where you're talking about a trade for Soto is the right move in this window of opportunity. And the first sentence is, the phenom is now an old man. And you talk about Mike Trout and his injury. It's so beautiful to see how – I could – Feel the wheels in your head turning as you are bringing me into your thinking in your article. Where does that come from? Where does the idea come from? And then how do you put together the article? Yeah, so honestly, with that one, you know, there's a lot of collaboration, too. I mean, that day, uh, Jorge Castillo, who, uh, you know, is one of our baseball writers, uh, just kind of called and we were talking. Right. And, you know, that day earlier, I mean, I the plan was for me to kind of go out to a, the Dodger game and write something on Soto. Uh, now, the, the Angels are in Kansas City and news kind of comes out about this uh, back condition that Mike Trout has. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the news of the day. Right. So you want to kind of try to make these things as relevant and make them feel as current as possible. You know, so now all of a sudden it's kind of OK. Is there a way to mm-hmm. kind of take this idea and, and blend it with what? Um, you know, with one of the, the idea that I already had, basically, which is that the Dodgers should trade for Soto. Hmm. Now, Jorge kind of calls and was pointing to the fact that, well, maybe this is an argument for why they shouldn't do it, hmm. right? Because the Angels invested $400 million in this guy, and now he's kind of damaged goods after just a handful of years. Uh, maybe this isn't the best idea. And to me, it was just kind of, well, it's, I actually, I think it's the opposite, right? Hmm. Because, you know, Mike Trout had this, uh, you know, the Angels had this great window with not only Trout, but also Shohei Otani. And now this window is about to close, right? They did not take advantage of their opportunity. And they're kind of, right, now they're condemned to kind of eternal mediocrity. Hmm. Um, you know, the Dodgers right now, if you look at the way they're constructed, their money is invested in two guys who are in their 30s now, in Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman, right? Mm-hmm. And so even though Betts is on a 12-year contract, Freeman's on a six-year contract, right? it gives this impression that, like, oh, these guys are going to be here a long time. Mm. But when you really look at it, I mean, they probably have a three-year window where both of these guys are going to be really good. Mm. And so if you have a chance to, uh, you know, uh, to maximize this opportunity, uh, why not bring in a guy like Juan Soto? And the great thing about Juan Soto is Juan Soto is only 23 years old. So Mm -hmm. if you extend him beyond 
uh, the three years of club control that you have here, uh, he can actually help you kind of build your next team, so to speak, right? Mm. So it was just kind of just kind of like that, just the way we're talking it out right now, right? It just kind of starts with a conversation, and then it's just pretty much what you think at that point. Mm. Do you do you recall a particular article that you wrote? or a particular article that you read where you just got this warm, fuzzy feeling and and just said, this is a perfect article? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my colleague Bill Plasky writes kind of a lot of those, right? Those kind of emotional, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I'm probably a little too cynical to write something like that, to be honest. <laughs> you know, uh, and honestly, whenever there is, I hear a story, because again, we all hear stuff and we right we, we talk to each other and you know there are a lot of times when again a colleague will say uh you know maybe this right i heard about this maybe this one's good for you you know and there are a lot of times when kind of these human interest stories where right somebody you know kind of does something really inspirational or something uh that's really kind of up Plasky's alley you know and i just i think a couple of years ago right when there was that fire up in paradise and he was writing about uh, the football team there, mm-hmm, right? I remember. Just, you know, a lot of the kids, yeah, they're, right, some of them are homeless at this point, and, you know, even just kind of like living kind of like in the, the parking lot of the school, and he, you know, went up there every month, right, every couple of weeks to to chronicle this football team. Uh, yeah, you know, to me, that's like where Bill Plaschke's really like at his best, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, <laughs> I'm probably a little bit too cynical to, mm-hmm. you know, be able to write something that, um because you know, I do think it it requires like a certain you know whenever you're kind of writing something about somebody else, obviously part of your you is admitting that that kind of stuff is in you too, and I'm not like kind of the warm fuzzy guy a lot of times, right? So, but Dylan, um, I I don't even like the word cynicism that you use. I this today's topic is actually about the fact that you have a talent for making me a, a layperson see something different. I had a great professor in my training who invented the knee replacement, Dr. Ranawat, who used to say the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Don't call it cynicism and please don't see it negatively. What you do, and we can get into it because I, actually, do you, can you stay on the line? I just want to continue this thought with you. Do you mind? Okay, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Right. No, no, no. I'm just having so much fun. Because I almost, listen, Michelangelo is dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I get to talk to Dylan Hernandez right now, and I can ask him about the thought process and the technique that you have. And it's not cynicism. You really, truly open our eyes to a different way. And we'll get into the Freddie Freeman article that you wrote, which I thought was fantastic. All right, hang on the line. Warriors, this is awesome. Listening to the great Dylan Hernandez from the L.A. Times. We'll get into it coming up next here on the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. It's the most entertaining thing in the world. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. From schwitzing like a piece of tuna fish. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That's French Thievery Corporation, the time we lost our way. It's about this topic, and you are the best at it, Dylan Hernandez, at showing us not cynicism, 
but the other side of the story. And in the case of Freddie Freeman, the article you wrote saying, hey, stop having such a love affair with the Atlanta Braves. You're a Dodger now. Get that out of your system. And then Clayton Kershaw embracing that as well. I believe what you did now made us all appreciate Freddie Freeman even more, and especially Freddie Freeman appreciating us that much more. Tell us a little bit about that our article and the impact it had on you. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I mean, I think we need to go back probably to the beginning of this, right, when, when the Dodgers first signed him. Uh, and, you know, I think really the reason he ended up here was that the Braves – didn't want him at least they didn't want him on the terms that he was asking for Hmm. and so you know and now at at that point i was actually kind of on his side on this thing in terms of you know the braves right at the because it's a publicly traded company we see their financial information they made a hundred million dollars in profit last year Hmm. you know and here's a guy who's a franchise cornerstone and they couldn't give this guy one more year Hmm. um for everything he's done over the years for them and built them into a champion um, you know, now that said, uh, so at the introductory press conference, he comes in and he's very, you know, everything is about the Braves not wanting him. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't talking to me, this and that, mm-hmm. and which is fine. He said his piece. But I think what happened after that was that the fans in Atlanta uh, kind of turned on him at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Because fans usually tend to be more. Right, they'll usually defend the team over like in the individual player. Mm. And I think that after that, then his stance kind of started to change, right? Immediately he started making peace. He went on this like, you know, put on this big show about making peace with the GM, the guy who basically discarded him. Mm. Um, you know, and so to me it just kind of the whole thing just looked really just kind of like orchestrated, right? And like mm. here's the thing, right? Is he look, you earn free agency as an athlete, you have the right to negotiate with anyone you have the right to go chase the money and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that i have no issue with a player right especially the way the teams treat a lot of these athletes they treat them as commodities mm-hmm. look if you're you want to get the money while you can that's fine now mm-hmm. there's a cost to everything that you do right and in this case you know you leave a team right there's there is a value say just staying in one place your entire career you know i'm sure say a guy like clayton kershaw could have actually as much as he's been paid he could have been paid more money Mm-hmm. had he wanted right mm-hmm. i mean he could have even fought the dodgers to get more money they probably would have given in even but once you kind of start that negotiating process like anything can happen and you know who knows maybe kershaw would have had to finish his career out in new york or something right mm-hmm. but um you know by staying a dodger he became that guy that all the fans loved i mean that's kind of part of the package here. he mm-hmm. gave up money but he has public adoration and so to me you know i had no issue with freeman you know insisting hey i want to be paid when i'm worth um, you know, mm-hmm. he, he left and usually, right, fans get upset. That's fine, too. Uh, it just felt to me that he wanted it both ways, right? So yeah. in his case, he wanted the fans of Atlanta to still love him, um, you know, yet at the same time, I mean, he still wanted his money, obviously. I mean, he was mm-hmm. talking about how much he loved the Braves. But at the end of the day, he wanted that sixth year more than he wanted to stay in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? And um so that was the part that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, right? And, like, he went to Atlanta and starts crying. And, you know, and I think, like, in our business a lot of times, too, you know, and there are, part of it is that there are time constraints, right? It's really hard to kind of write on the spot. And, when, and so any time, like, people cry or kind of show emotion, I think that people kind of fall back on the quickest narrative, so to speak, because it's easiest to write, you know. And, again, like, 
uh, you know, the, the, the writers that were there you know, on the day that Freeman was crying and stuff, I mean, they're under tremendous deadline pressure, you know, mm-hmm. so you just kind of have to bang this thing out. And, you know, so no one really kind of questioned this thing, right? It was too nuanced of a thing to kind of really be able to get into. Mm. So, yeah, basically, you know, a couple of days later, I had, the, you know, I had the benefit of having some time. I actually waited for him to come back to Los Angeles to give him an opportunity to talk. Mm. Um, you know, and that's kind of the other part of this is that, um, you know, I, I don't like talk to these guys necessarily because I want to. You know, I feel like, in, especially in a case like this where mm. I'm going to criticize the guy for his behavior, I'm giving him an opportunity to change my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe to tell me, you know what, you got this wrong, right? There's, there's, mm-hmm. this is the whole story here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, even after like a game, right? I mean, there's no real, it's not fun to, you know, a guy messes something up, whatever, you go talk to the guy after the game. I mean, there's no, that's not a fun experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I tend to do these things a lot, but it's, I do it as, almost as like giving this guy an opportunity to tell his side of the story. Uh, so I put in a request to the Dodgers PR department. I told them exactly what I was going to write. I think this guy's trying to have it both ways. I'm going to rip him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, that's what I was communicated with him. A PR guy told me he doesn't want to talk. Even then, I waited uh, that day. I stayed for the entire game. I caught him after the game, and I'm like, hey, are you sure you don't want to say anything? I just want to give you an opportunity to talk, you wow. know? Wow. Um, so, wow, Dylan. Yeah, so, so I just, you know, at that point, I was like, okay, he, don't, he doesn't want to talk. Hey, I, honestly, at that point, it's almost easier for me, right? Right, Because, right. you know, it's I can just write exactly what I feel. And so I just kind of wrote out, yeah, you know, this hmm. felt really kind of contrived. And uh, I think really he's just trying to have it both ways, you know. And it's, awesome. it's interesting the way that thing was received because I think like most of the fans, um, at least like the ones on Twitter, which is, I know, like that's like the most like extreme, like 10% of people, hmm. you know, so – Reaction there was like overwhelmingly bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I haven't heard one word, uh, one negative word from anybody who knows the guy. <laughs> no, I, I so. listen. I'm a fan of yours, and I'm not. You know, I, I'm just sitting there going, "Oh my god!" I did not even see it that way. If it wasn't for you, it's keep doing what you're doing, Dylan. I where does it come from? Your mom, your dad. Where do you where do you get this from? With this tenacious desire to uncover the truth where does that come from uh i don't know if it's so much that as much as it is just my my, obviously i have a different cultural perspective right i Mm -hmm. grew up between three cultures um and i never while i'm part of all three i'm also not in some way Mm -hmm. you know and so i do think like just my view on things is a little bit different Mm -hmm. um and the one thing i'll say this is that one the one really successful thing i think my parents did was it did give me a lot of confidence. And I don't know where this kind of came from. You know, mm-hmm. I always, my mom, you know, was kind of the Japanese mom in town that, right, whenever a Japanese family moved over, they were the ones, my, they, right, they, they would always go talk to my mom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always remember hearing stories about, you know, kids kind of feeling uncomfortable taking Japanese food to lunch at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I never had that problem. You know, if anything, <laughs> the rice balls my mom made, I managed to turn these things into commodities, right? People would, like, try to buy them or trade, with me, trade food with me, you know? So, yeah. um, so I think kind of more naturally it's just that I just kind of naturally, again, have, like, a different perspective. And I just kind of feel like, well, this is what I think. It comes through. And I kind of... It comes yeah, through in your articles and, and, and the topics you pick, Dylan. It's thank God for your mom. She she did the right thing. Uh, and What's the best advice you got? This is my last question. 
What's the best advice you got, that voice that you hear in your head from either a professor or a senior writer or a mentor that sticks into your head that allows you to have this freedom to think clearly about what you want to do? Um, you know, I don't know if there was any specific thing he said, but, you know, when I, when I first got to the Times and I was covering the Dodgers, TJ Simers was kind of, you know, the mm-hmm. right. He and he, he was the other guy with Plasty there. And, you know, he and I remain good friends to this day. And, you know, I know the way he kind of wrote his column was very right. You know, it was kind of a very playful type thing, but he was like a very solid journalist, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of actually like, again, ethics in terms of, you know, again, the whole thing about like me giving, I gave Freeman every chance to talk. Right. 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 About just kind of being fair in a way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I know like some people are going to say like fair TJ Cybers, but here's the thing. He actually was right to be able to pull off the type of stuff he did. And now, right. If, I mean, he was a whole different animal. You know, he would just like walk up to people mm-hmm. and just ask them directly, like, why do you suck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> to be able to pull something like that off, you actually need to be ethically kind of on very solid ground. Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a lot of, you know, teams that deal with you're upsetting people fairly regularly. And if you're not on solid ground, uh, they will find a way to kind of take you out at some point, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of doing all those little things right. And mm-hmm. as long as you do all those little things right, look, whatever comes out, is kind of that's fair game at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it was just kind of more learning from him and even, you know, Bill Plasky and I, I mean, we talk every day, right. You know, um, and I saw him yesterday at Pac-12 media day and, you know, he has really good instincts in terms of like stuff to pick, in, mm. right. Because right now that this is, this is the truth, right. Is that we have our industry. It's not, especially with the internet, you know, 20 years ago, you got the paper. We would just tell you, Hey, you need to read this. Right. right? Uh, now we need to be kind of fairly topical. Right. right. So that doesn't mean necessarily that doesn't mean like being dishonest, but in terms of picking topics, right. you do need to pick things that people are interested in. Nobody's better than that, you know, than, than Flashkey. Got it. Listen, on behalf of 710 and ESPN here in Los Angeles, where Michael Thompson is our beloved Michael Thompson, who happens to be a patient of mine as well, please, my only request is Trace Thompson. Oh, my God. He's the it's as if Clay Thompson played for the Lakers. That's how important Trace Thompson is right now. So as the Dodger writer, the baseball writer, it's just beautiful. And to be able to hear you writing about him in the future will be fantastic. Other than that, I have no requests, Dylan, other than please don't change. You are amazing. And you really don't see it as cynicism. You really are opening our eyes to stuff that we wouldn't ordinarily see. Really, I'm the president of the fan club, and I really want to thank you so much for making time to be with us this morning. Uh, no, thank you so much for your kind words, and uh, thank you, you know, for the opportunity to just, uh, you know, get to share some stories with your audience. Uh, my pleasure, Dylan. God bless you, and uh, we'll see you in the paper. Basically, thanks so much. All right, Warriors, no, the great. You. You're welcome. The great Dylan Hernandez, my favorite writer for the L.A. Times, because he opens our eyes to something. Each and every one of his articles, look for them in the paper, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's He's going to write about something that you would not ordinarily think about or see in your favorite athlete. All right, coming up next, the lines are all lit up. We'll do some clapper vision. The number's 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710-ESPN. 
Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m., Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. It's time for Clapper Killies. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Where has this been my whole life? Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Oh, my God. That was terrific. To talk to someone, I don't care what you do for a living, but who's the best at what they do, it's it's inspiring. I don't care if you're making donuts, pizza, electronics, IT, surgery, you name it. Baseball player, to talk to someone who's at the height of their field, it's different. You know, the air is clearer up there. The, vis- the visibility is a lot clearer up there. And now we have some insight about the challenge, actually, of being a journalist for a newspaper. That world is changing. I won't say dying. It's changing. And you better recognize that. My world of medicine's changing. These hip and knee replacements I do, shoulder replacements, they don't go to the floor anymore. People go home the same day. It's crazy. I don't use the hospital like I used to. One thing that is certain not to change in life is change. It's always going to change. All right, let's take some calls. The lines are lit up. Let's go to Tom. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Tom, you there? Dr. Clapper. Yes, right yes, here. I am. How young are you? What it's do you do a, for a living? It's an honor to talk to you. I do I do real estate, and I'm uh, I just turned sixty nine. Wow! One more year before the big seven. Oh wow! Talk to me. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? What your father do for a living? My father passed away a few years ago, about ten years ago. What did he do for a living? I uh, was a farmer. Really? Where? Yes. And uh, back uh, in the historic Iran. Wow. How many acres? Like a big farm, cattle, or he grew stuff? It's a, He grew stuff. He, wow. had, uh, he had a bunch of them. Wow. And you didn't want to become a farmer, huh? No, I did not. You're kind of a farmer. You, you know, you're still that dealing was, with land. You're was, doing real estate. That's kind of like being a farmer. That's true. Yeah, that's true. You never had. You have to look at it that way. And what's your sport? You love the yeah. Lakers or you're a Clipper well, fan? You're a Clipper fan. I'm hanging up on you I'm right now. Do- I'm a diehard Lakers fan. God bless. I've been you. a Lakers fan since they traded Kareem to L.A. So let me tell you. Let me ask you this, Tom. I mean, I'm sure you watch the Dodgers also. Doesn't a little bit of, of you course, watching that's Trace? My team, that's my team too. Watching Trace Thompson now. It's a little bit like watching Clay Thompson as if he was on the Lakers. That's what it's like to watch Trace Thompson in the outfield, right? Isn't that awesome? It's, Absolutely. Oh, it just makes me so happy to watch how he yeah, did Tom, every Tom, game. Mm. Yeah, Tom, Tommy was my favorite manager. Yeah. Oh, you know what Jim Murray said about Tommy Lasorda? I got the quote. Jim uh, Murray, because we talked to Dylan Hernandez. So I had all these quotes from uh, Jim Murray, the great, a journalist for the LA Times. He said about Tommy Lasorda, he's as noisy as a bowling alley. <laughs> That's what Jim Murray said about him. Uh, and, um, you, 
And you know what you know what Jim Murray said about Ricky Henderson? He said his strike zone is as big as Hitler's heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a journalist, That's a Jim Murray. Oh my God. Yep. yep. My God. All right, what you do to yourself? How can I help you? Well, I uh, since February 11, 2017, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I was kind of up, uh, jumping up and down. I felt some numbness on my right side from my below my right chest down all the way to my toes. Felt the numbness. Mm. Since then, I have gone to every almost specialty doctors with have done uh, MRIs. Uh, with my neck, my thoracic, my lower back. Okay, so you're you're basically spot, calling me. Cord. You're calling me because something neurologic, numbness going from your chest to your foot, is going on, which on my, makes me think on about my right side, my half of my body. Yeah. Okay. So my my right so side. your your spinal cord and your brain and all that needs to be evaluated. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Thank God you don't need someone like me for this. But I tell you who you're going to need. And I'm going to give you the name of the guy that you need to go to. All right? So you're calling for my mm-hmm. advice. You better take the advice and don't give me pushback. Okay? okay. I'm, a, I'm a New York Jewish doctor. So I'm not putting up with any kind of, but Dr. Clapper, I should do that. Now, if I tell you something, this is what you have to do. Okay? No ifs, ands, okay. or buts. The best neurologist, the guy that you're going to need to see, he's at Cedars-Sinai, where I've been on staff for 33 years. He's at Cedars, and his name is Stephen Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. He's the best neurologist. Spike. You need to go see him, okay? Okay, because I'm a, I'm a, I have an appointment to go see uh, a lady from... Uh, Good, go UCLA. ahead. Gake isn't a hey. You can see whoever you want. That's not why you're calling me. Well, you're I'll calling me because you asked me, Dr. Clapper, who should I go see? And I'm telling you who you should go Absolutely. see. So you know what that means? Forget about everybody else, okay? Right, right. And one other question. It's like you selling doctor. a piece of real estate, right? Where you go, here, here's the piece of real estate. Yeah. And the guy shows up and goes, can I ask you a question about the property next door? And you look at him and go, what are you, what are you asking me about the property next door? I got this property. This is the one I want to sell you. Why do you want me to tell you about the other piece of property, right? You would look at him like, I don't want this guy exactly. as a client, all right? I don't want this person as yeah. a patient if they're not going to listen to what I'm telling them to do, all right? Do- doctor, would you also recommend uh, – I'm going to go see Dr. Steven. Uh, would you also recommend, uh, if nothing happens here – to go to Mayo Clinic for an evaluation. No, no, no. I'm not. This is what I want you to do: collect your all the discs, all the reports, all the the file. You you know how to make a file on a piece of property you're going to sell, right? You put it in a folder, and all I the information, all. the title policy, the mortgage, the previous owners. You put together a nice little file. Well, guess what, Tom? It's time for you to put together a file, not for a piece of real estate. But the Tom file, the neurologic Tom file with all the studies you have. So when you go to see Dr. Sykes, you go, here, this is what my file is. What do I got to do now? Tell me what's the matter with me. That's what you're going to do. I'm not interested in pills or stem cells or other cockamamie treatment. We'll get into treatment first after you figure out what your diagnosis is. Capiche? Yeah, I've done 
I've done my. Uh, I just did an MRI. Good. My, uh, neck Put it MRI, in the file. MRI. I'm doing my. Lo- I'm doing my lower back MRI next week. Good. You believe me. You ain't all- gonna be able to see him next week. He's busy like I am. But get your file together. Call his office on Monday and go see him. Okay. Now you're a total stranger okay. to me, Tom. I want you to find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. Okay. Um. Actually, I'm doing something nice today. I'm doing for my kids their graduation party. Your kids don't count. They're not total strangers. They're your kids. You better do a graduation party. You need to find the kid up the street who doesn't have a father who you can now do something nice for, invite him to the party. I'll I'll, I'll do my best to find somebody. All right, young man. God bless you, and thanks for calling the Weekend Warriors show. Thank you so much. God bless you. you. Appreciate it. All right, Warriors. Let's talk about next week. Well, I'm in the operating room one day at Cedars-Sinai, my hospital, and they're going to be doing a spinal anesthetic because that's how we do. You don't go to sleep anymore like you used to for hip and knee surgery that I do so many of. And I'm watching the, the anesthesiologist use a certain device, a chair on wheels that lets the patient bend over better so that they can put the medication into the the right spot to do the anesthetic. And I'm looking at this chair going, this is incredible. I see the company. This is while I'm watching, right before the surgery. I see the company's name. I look it up. They're in South Dakota. I call South Dakota. What do I care, right? I'm from New York. I can do anything. I get them on the phone. Who designed this chair? This is incredible. They're going to be my guest next week. So I started to do some research. Where are the greatest chairs in art, in sports? I've already told you about surgery. You know why Frank Sinatra is called the chairman of the board? Talk about the word chair. I'm going to tell you next week. And in the world of sports, the first man in sports to ride over 200 miles an hour, not as the driver, but he was a driver, but the guy who designed it, his name was Dan Gurney. Wait till you hear the story about Dan Gurney, a local grown Southern California guy who changed the world of auto racing. Frank Sinatra, the chairman of the board who changed the world of music. Can't wait for next week's topic. And by the way, the best veal parmesan in Los Angeles, Dan Tanner's. That's where you're going to go. When it's your birthday or something to celebrate, I'll see you there. Until next week, I leave you with Volare. Until next week, I'll see you on the radio.